good morning again. It's good to see everybody. I heard last week uh, when I came in, someone told me there was a rumor that the Converge group went on a polar plunge. And I said, I know that group. I guarantee you they went on a polar plunge. So we've got winter retreat coming up, which I think that will probably happen again. I don't think I'm going to be able to dodge a bullet. I think I'm going to jump in. But it's fun. And I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Does uh, hanging out with them keep you young in some ways? And in some ways it makes you tired too. But um, it's a good, good group of youth and uh, young people we have in this church. So we're blessed, blessed to have them. And one thing I tell them all the time is I hear this said and I understand the sentiment, but I don't fully agree with it. You know, these are the future of our church. I understand the sentiment. They're the present. They are the church. So young people, all the things that have happened in church history, you look at these big uh, revivals and things, led by young people. They are led by young people, so they are the church today. Well, good morning again. Uh, we're in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week, we, uh, you know, we talked about uh, speaking in tongues and you know, women speaking in church and all that kind of stuff. This week is the gospel. This is, uh, man, this is great stuff. So uh, tune in and, and hear it. It's for those that don't know it and for those that already do know it because constantly, constantly we need to revel in the gospel. We need to understand who God is as much as we can and who we are and our position with God. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful relationship, but we've got to get things in order. Just like we talked about last week, everything in order. Well, the gospel has an order as well. So let's just jump right into it. Not to say I told you so is the, uh, is the title of this, because at the very beginning of this, Paul is saying the gospel's something that I preach to you, and it's something that the Old Testament brought out. God said it was going to happen, and then it happened, and that happens time and time again. By the way, 100% of the time when God says something, it's true. When God says he's going to do something, he does it 100% of the time. He's not the kind of God that says, not to say I told you so, but you know, he could. But I told you so. So let's jump into it. We'll go right into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel Paul's declaring is, who knows what the word gospel means? Good news, that's what the word gospel means. It is good news. And I, I mentioned this in Catalyst class this morning, but good news, I've got some. Yeah, you know me, don't you? Good news is good if you understand the bad news. If I were to say to you that some town in France, it rained today, is that good news or bad news? We don't know, right? It's just news. But if you heard they had a drought there for two years, you would understand that that bad news makes the rain good news. So Paul's going to lay out some of the good news. He's laid out a lot of the bad stuff here, right? The whole of this book thus far has been, hey, Corinthians, uh, you're goofing some stuff up, and this is a better way to do it. Hey, Corinthians, you've got gifts that God gave you, and we need to use them properly. You know, hey, Corinthians, there's some gifts that you need to use on your own because they're going to edify you. And there's other gifts that you need to use for everyone else. And if you're going to use those gifts that are for your edification in front of people, well, make sure they're edified too. And if not, don't use them. 
He's putting an order on things. It's other people first. It's Jesus, others, and yourself. Joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and then yourself. We come in last. But when we do it in God's way, when we get that order right, things work out so much better. It's like before I was following Jesus, you know, I didn't have Jesus first in my life, and I would, I would love my wife. Because if I'm going to love someone else like God first, then I would only have some leftovers for my wife. But that's not the way it actually works. When I'm receiving love from the giver of love first, I have an overflowing of it to give. And I remember the day I told my wife, I said, you know what? I'm not really the spiritual head of this household, and it's time I am. And she said, amen to that. That is a true statement. Yes, you should be. So Paul's gonna, Paul is declaring the good news that he preached to them. And the good news is that Jesus offers us all eternal life based on his love for us, right? Demonstrated by his sacrificial death. And it's a death that we deserve, but it's not on us. He did it. He spared us, and he proved who he is by the resurrection. And we'll talk a little bit more about the resurrection, number one, because it's awesome. And number two, Paul's mentioning it here in these verses, and it is of utmost importance. So that good news is actually great news. It is great news. We don't have to be eternally separated from God. If we choose to, we can, but we don't have to be. We can choose to not be eternally separated from God. It's a choice that we have to respond to the truth, to that good news, to rely on not ourselves, but Jesus' payment for our sins. Like I said, it doesn't seem like good news if you don't realize the bad news. The bad news is none of us meet God's standard. We all need a Savior. If you don't think you need a Savior, this doesn't sound like good news. But the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We read that earlier in Corinthians. So to those who are not being saved, this sounds like foolishness. It can. Now when the Holy Spirit starts talking to you, talking to you in your heart, and you're saying, this is true, I need to respond. That is true, you need to respond. Whether you believe it or not, really, whether you believe it or not, we all need a Savior. And whether you believe it or not, None of you, including myself, meet God's standard. If you believe that, good. If you don't believe that, you're believing in error. The fact that God loves us and did the work is the reason why we are able to have eternal security with him. It has nothing to do with what we do, right? We cannot abide with God for an eternity on our own merit. I can't sustain myself in heaven even when I get there. When I'm in heaven, guess what? I still have to have an understanding, a belief, a faith, or something that God is going to maintain me there. Because even when I'm, when this body's dead, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. But when I'm in heaven, I'm not maintained there by myself. It's God and his promises. So that never really goes away. And you may not think that God is perfect, but you're wrong if you, if you don't think that. He is, and his standard is perfection likewise. That's, you know, man, when his standard, you think about his standard being absolutely perfect, it's like, well, what does that mean for me? Because I'm not. I mean, even if you made the slightest little error 
back in 1973, where you were actually correct, but just for a moment you thought you were incorrect. Well, guess what? You're not perfect. And being not perfect is an infinite distance away from being perfect. I mean, making a bajillion mistakes and making one little one, you're really the same distance away from perfection. There's no difference. God is perfect, and we don't meet that standard. Now, the gospel that Paul is talking about, he says that we stand in that. We hold fast to that. And that's standing fast in the fact that Jesus Christ did the work. Nothing that we did is Jesus Christ did the work. So Paul says in verse 2 that it's where you stand unless you believe in vain. It doesn't say unless you work in vain. It says unless you believe in vain. It's a belief issue. It's It's not a you're not good enough issue. It's not you've done too much nasty stuff or whatever. It's a, the truth is there and you don't believe it or you believed it in vain. And he's writing this to a, we've read the first 14 chapters of Corinthians, right? So he's writing this to a horde of knuckleheads, okay? So he's telling these knuckleheads, and I, the reason I say that is that's, I talked to you earlier, that's what God calls me when I'm praying and he's answering me. He calls me a knucklehead quite a bit. He really does. But he's saying to this horde of knuckleheads, we've talked about a lot of stuff that you guys have done wrong. We've talked about some stuff that was really out there kind of wrong. But your issue is, if you have an issue, is your belief. Is do you believe? Now, not to say that, you know, rotten works aren't rotten. We're saved unto good works. We need to, we need to do good things because that's the lane that God put us in. But it's a belief issue. And yes, he is talking to a bunch of saved knuckleheads. Of course, in any group that big, there's, they're not all saved. So the next verse, he says, well, actually, before that, let me, let me harken back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, just to, just to clarify it. Remember, a belief issue, not a works issue. Good memory verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, Right? It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If it's a gift, it's something that is free. If someone hands you a gift and says, happy birthday, Merry Christmas, happy anniversary, here's a gift for you, you say thank you, and then they say, hey, that'll be uh, 20 bucks. Guess what it is no longer? It's no longer a gift, right? It's a thing that you just bought. A gift is absolutely free. And this is what we stand and believe in. Let's move on to verse 3. Verse 3 says, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. He's saying what I, the gospel that I gave you is the gospel that I received. We're not changing the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So at this time, we talked about this a little bit in Catalyst class today. At this time in history, the New Testament books were not in your local bookstore. So when he says according to the scriptures... What he's saying is God told us this was going to happen in the Old Testament. And what has happened was exactly what God said was going to happen. In the scriptures, he died according to the scriptures. It said that in the Old Testament. He was buried, and the way he was buried was according to the scriptures. And he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. It was already written. So what God says, he actually does from every time. And uh, uh, for instance here is there's a prophecy in Psalm 40, uh, verses 6 through 8, and that prophecy is fulfilled and it's also referenced 
in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. And in those verses, we see that uh, it will show that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 5 through 10. But I want to start at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. By that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By that we have been sanctified. So we need to go back to the verse 5. By what have we been sanctified? Whenever you see a therefore, you go back to see what the therefore is there for. And likewise, by that. Well, by what have we been saved? So let's move back to verse 5. It says, therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, now this is from Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that being compelled by the law, that he may establish the second, and that's his will. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And there's many, many, many more Old Testament verses that speak of, uh, prophesy Jesus and his substitutionary death. But we just read some in Isaiah. In the New Testament scriptures that show that, there's, there's many of those that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Uh, we don't have time to, to go into all those, but they are there. But I want to point out one last thing in this Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, that last verse, where it says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that once for all is so very important because Jesus died once, one time. I've had this question asked of me of so many people. You know, I've sinned since I've been saved. Am, am I forgiven for that too? Jesus died once for all. As a matter of fact, in your Bible, the for all might even be italicized, which means it was added. And, and it's added for, you know, our, the way we speak our language today. Been sanctified by Jesus' death, and he died once. And that should settle it. You don't have to go get saved again. Jesus doesn't have to die again. I look at this cross, and guess who's not on the cross? Jesus is not on the cross anymore. He died once. He came down from that cross, and he resurrected himself into heaven. He's alive. He is the risen Savior. And he died once. He's not doing it again because his substitutionary death was perfect. He got it right the first time. It was absolutely perfect. So that's a very important thing for a New Christian, old Christian, anyone to understand is that Jesus' once, his one death, perfected what needed to be perfected, his work for our sins, once and done. And that he was buried according to the scriptures. We'll talk about this too. He died according to the scriptures, right? And he was buried. The way he was buried is according to the scriptures. It was very specific. In uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 9, which is a little bit before we read this morning, it states this. And they made his grave with the wicked. You did read it. But with the rich at his death, because they, 
because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. That seems contradictory. But he was crucified with the wicked. You remember the thieves at the cross. Two criminals were crucified with him. That was fulfilled in many places, but also Mark chapter 15, verses 27 and 28. Mark 15, 27 and 28. says, with them, excuse me, with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, which would be for y'all, right and left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with his transgressors. He was crucified with the unrighteous, with the wicked. And of course, that specific line is also in Isaiah 53, 12. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So he was buried in a rich man's tomb, murdered or crucified, killed with wicked men, but buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a Sanhedrin council member. member. Very, very wealthy, prominent man. He was the one that brought him down and got things set up for him to be buried in his tomb. In chapter Mark, further on in chapter 15, verse 43 through 46, we talk about that, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. It says verse 43 of Mark chapter 15. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. When he found out the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, so Joseph was rich, so he could buy some fine linen. Took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of rock and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. Now, there are more prophecies we could explore here, but it's evident that Jesus was even buried according to the Scriptures. And a a little point there, when they put Jesus in the tomb, they rolled the stone in front. I remember when I was a brand-new Christian hearing, you know, the, the tomb was there and had a stone so big nobody could move it. That's not the case. They rolled the stone in front of the tomb. And, of course, when... Mary came and, and Peter, they came to see Jesus' tomb, the stone opened. The stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so they could get in, okay? And uh, when we we'll actually look at Lazarus' resurrection here in a little bit, and you'll see something different in there. They moved the stone out of the way so Lazarus could get out. But like I said, there's a lot of other scriptures we look at, but in uh, interest of time, we'll move on to uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, we'll go on to verse 4. And that one is that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And for this, we'll go back to Psalm 1610. And in Psalm 1610, it's a prophecy about Jesus' resurrection, and it states this. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The amplified version of this is, maybe a little bit clearer in our language, it says, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus was to be resurrected, but more specifically, before his body saw decay. And a Jewish tradition would say this will happen after the three days. And if we look at, like I mentioned, Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was resurrected from the dead by Jesus. And this was a situation where uh, Jesus was out of town, Lazarus was sick. Now, of course, Jesus knew what was going to happen, by the way. This wasn't a surprise to him. Lazarus became sick and then died. 
And Jesus was tarrying where he was, waited a couple days, and then headed to Lazarus' house. And when he got there, Lazarus had been dead for a while. And we'll go into uh, John chapter 11, verse 39, and, and read that account where Jesus came to his tomb and was going to resurrect Lazarus. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Because Lazarus had to come out, right? He's not Jesus. He wasn't going to go right through the stone. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. This is why, this is how that prophecy was fulfilled in Acts 40 that says he rose again on the third day. The third day was before decay. Lazarus was dead four days. And I know Pastor Clint's mentioned before when he was a kid, he read it in the, in the King James, he stinketh. I think that's what he was saying and said. But after that three days, when you're in the fourth day, that decay happens. That uh, your body is really like no longer the same. You're turning into dirt, so to speak. And here we see that Jesus can resurrect us at any point in time, which is a cool proof for me because I'm going to be buried somewhere or I don't know what's going to happen to me. Maybe maybe it'll happen right now. We'll just shoot up into heaven. That'll be great. But I have a hope in Christ that it really doesn't matter. Like I'm an organ donor. Okay, you can have my organs. You can do what I don't need this body after I'm gone. And Jesus is going to resurrect something new for me later on. So it's really kind of cool when you see that someone's gone past that three days and Jesus is still God and he'll still resurrect people whole. But he was resurrected on the third day before he saw corruption, which meets that prophecy, just like it was stated in the Old Testament. He said he was going to do it and he did it. Let's move on to uh, verse 5, 1 Corinthians verse 5. So all the things here that we've talked about, all these things happened according to the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, not the New Testament. They're proven out in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 5, after he was resurrected, it says, and that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the 12, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James and then all of the other Apostles, all the apostles. So Paul is telling the church that Peter and the other apostles were witness to the resurrected Christ. They saw him. Of course, they walked with him before he was dead. And they saw Jesus in person. They could touch him after the resurrection. And he also says there was 500 other people that actually saw him. And the better part of those 500 are still alive. So what he's saying is, hey, Corinthian church, don't check your brain at the door. There are people that have seen this. They're available. Get their testimony and talk to them. Of course, Paul himself had seen the resurrected Christ. And he says later he was born out of due time because of his circumstance. But he's saying to the church, don't check your brain at the door. There's people out here that have an account of that. Go talk to them. They're still out there. Most of them are still alive, he says. So what about us today? I mean, does anybody know anybody that has an eyewitness account? Of Christ? I mean, we're reading something that, you know, that he had an eyewitness count, but we can't go walk down the street and like, no, hey, who's seen Jesus? Now, by the way, if someone says they saw Jesus in person, no, they didn't. They didn't. So don't listen to them, okay? 
But what about the apostles' testimonies? What were they saying? These are the people, the people that had eyewitness accounts. They were the ones that were actually walking and talking with Jesus. And they would preach Jesus. They went all around the world. And what's their testimony? It's the gospel. And how do they live their lives? Did they utilize their knowledge and their, their eyewitness accounts of Jesus to obtain wealth and all this great stuff, these worldly possessions? And, or was it the opposite? It was the opposite. The people that saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, were preaching Jesus, how did they live their lives and how did they die? You think about if Paul and Peter and Thomas and James, the brother of Jesus, who thought Jesus was a little crazy while Jesus was alive, and James wound up being the head of the church in, in Jerusalem. And James was beheaded right before Peter got thrown in prison to most likely be beheaded the next day, got broken out of prison by an angel. But why didn't James just say, hey, I'm in prison here. I was just kidding. I didn't really mean it. Can I go home now? He could have done that. Why didn't Paul, who said in 2 Timothy, hey, it's coming near and in here. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm about to lose my head, so to speak. But I've run a good race. I've fought the good fight, and he's not given up. Why would these people do that? Were they crazy? Were all of them crazy? Were every single one of the people that walked with Jesus hallucinating? Or did they encounter the living God were fully convinced that he was who he said he was and went to their graves believing it, being persecuted, spit on, beat, imprisoned, and murdered, sawed in half, skinned alive, run through with uh, spears, beheaded, crucified upside down. Now, a lot of these accounts here are not in the biblical record, but they're you know historical in church. We see James getting beheaded. We know Paul was about to be. But why would all these people who had eyewitness accounts time with Christ all do the same thing, not recount, not say, I was just kidding, can I live? They all stuck to their guns to their graves. That is a testimony for us today, that it wasn't one of these people that's in another sect somewhere that did some crazy stuff, right, that believed something wacky. These are eyewitnesses that followed it to their grave. And I think that's a really, really important point to remember Even Paul's telling the Corinthians, don't check your brain at the door, that we shouldn't either. We should search the scriptures like the Bereans, and we should look through uh, historical accounts and do whatever we can to, to look for the truth. Because I can tell you this, if you have that question in your mind that's just bugging you, that uh, it's hard to believe because of this one thing, here's what I can 100% fully tell you without any, like, uh, you know, I'm kind of scared if you search it out because you might find something that's outside the Bible. If you're seeking truth and you find that truth, it is going to line up with the Bible because this is the foundation. This is truth. So I'm not scared to tell you, hey, if you've got a question, find the answer. Come ask me. I can help you with it. Um, and guess what? If you ask me some questions, here would be my, original, my, my immediate answer to you. I don't know, but we can find out or we can search for it, right? I don't know everything, but I can tell you this. I've had enough questions in my life. I've had questions after I got saved. And my answer that I was given was, you just got to have faith. I'm like, that's a garbage answer. If it's something that I need to know an answer to. Now, there are times when we will not understand something. But if you've gotten so many of these things answered and you've, I say, sat in that pew long enough to where you trust it, 
where you follow Jesus' direction enough where you trust him. There's going to be mysteries you don't understand. But that faith is not a blind faith. It's not. I, I don't wish blind faith upon anybody. I want you to have a Hebrews 11.1 faith, a faith that has substance, a faith that is proof of things that you hope for, not just something like, gee whiz, I really have faith that this will work out. Like I'm going to go buy a lottery and I'm going to have faith that I win. That's not faith. That's a, a wishy-washy kind of hope, right? But that faith that Christ offers is real, has substance, because when you step with him, when you walk with him, and you take that step where it's dark and you don't know where he's leading you, but you let him lead you time and time and time again, it works out his way. And so like I said, sitting in the pew, nobody that I saw checked out the pew before you sat down. You didn't check out its structural integrity. You plopped right down in it because you had faith in it. You've done it a million times. You trust it. It's very similar with God. As you walk with him, you trust him more and more and more. But that doesn't come, that, that faith is not a, Gee whiz, I really hope this works. It's I've got proof that it's going to work. I've got evidence that God is who he says he is and that he's going to back up what he says. And it's something that's just an awesome place to be when you know that God has got your back. You know, it's like going on the playground and somebody's picking on you. I'm going to get my big brother after you. Well, I got God. You know, he's got my back. And there's nothing, there's nothing that can shake you, right? Nothing. The righteous shall not be shaken. He's, we'll let it happen sometimes, but God's not, not one that's going to make us that way. All right, I'm getting off topic. But these guys died for their faith. They suffered for their faith. And they're the ones that saw Jesus incarnate. And they're the ones that walked with him. So that's something to consider. Let's move on to verse 8. And Paul says, after he was seen by the, the 12 and then in the 500, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul says he's a man born out of time. The, the, the 12 apostles, uh, they saw Jesus while he was alive, walking the planet, and then he was resurrected, and then Paul saw him out after the resurrection. And before that, Paul was a persecutor of the church. When they stoned Stephen to death, he gave two thumbs up and said, I'll hold your coats. You ever try to throw a stone with a heavy coat? Well, Paul helped him out. I'll hold your coat so you can get a better throw at Stephen and kill him. That was Paul. And Paul's saying, look, now, keep in mind that he's been talking to these knucklehead Corinthians, and then he places himself in the position that, hey, I was born out of due time, but yet by the grace of God, he saved me. I was a persecutor of the church. You guys have been doing some stupid stuff. I was a persecutor of the church, and by the grace of God, he saved me. He's saying, now the other 12 apostles, they've done a lot of great stuff, and this might sound conceited at first, but let's, let's, let's look at it. But Paul says, hey, maybe I've done more than they've done. But what is he saying? He's not saying, look at me. He's saying, look at God. Hey, I'm lower than the apostles. I'm, I'm down here. I used to murder Christians. I used to imprison Christians. And yet, God uses this vessel for something maybe even greater than someone that didn't do that. It's not look at me. It's look what God did with something that was useless, 
Now, where are you? Are you, God can't use me. Shame on you talking bad about God like that. Don't say that. You're not talking bad about yourself. You're talking bad about God. God can't use little old me. You need to give God more credit. It's up to God, not you. It's not about you. It's not about me. That's what Paul's saying right here. He's not placing himself up on a pedestal. He's saying, hey, God has used this broken vessel to do some great stuff. And it's not me. It's Christ in me. So when we try to, you know, we definitely want to be super humble and all this kind of stuff. And that's, you know, we only get into that. I'm not going to teach you all how to be humble. We'll go on a journey together, right? Because as soon as anybody says that, you got to start thinking about, are they really humble? But God will take someone that is broken and use them. And I asked this question in, in Catalyst today. So if you're in my Catalyst class, you're not allowed to answer. But I do want you to see what this answer is. God's chosen people are the Jews, right? Why are they God's chosen people? Why did God choose the Jews? There was the Canaanites and the all these other ites, parasites, all these other things. And he chose the Jews. Why? The answer is because they were the least of the people. That's why they're God's chosen people. Why would he choose the least? That's what Paul's saying here. Because when the least does awesome things or being used as a vessel for God to do awesome things, it glorifies God. If it was the greatest, most awesome group of people and they continue doing great, awesome things, God's not glorified in that. Well, he could be because he's God. But when the least of these is used by God to do great things, that glorifies God. That's one of the main points Paul's making here at the end when he's saying, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be an apostle. He's not just like, look at me, I'm super humble, yet I do these awesome things. But you know, I'm He's saying, <laughs> I've done some horrible things, and my station was a, I was, a, I was a pompous person who wanted to kill Christians, and God took that and did some amazing things. So where are we? What are we doing? Are we being used of God, Right? What's our thought process on day-to-day, how we live our life? Are we laboring for his kingdom? Now, where are you? I have to ask myself this question every day. We have to every day. Are you in the grace of God? You know, have you surrendered your life to Jesus and accepted the gospel? Have you accepted that? If the answer is no, uh, today's a great day to do it, by the way. Today's a wonderful day to feel that goading, that prick on your heart, that's saying this is true. Jesus is who he says he is. And he is the God of the universe that wants to save my soul, not for his own, I mean, not, not, not because of what you did, but because of what he does, because he loves you. And let me tell you one thing about Jesus. We, we've talked about the resurrected Jesus, right? And mentioned in the Old Testament that he was going to be resurrected. In the New Testament, it shows that he was. But here's a cool thing. There's a lot of places in the Bible that say that God resurrected Jesus, right? The power of God resurrected Jesus. It's all through Acts and Galatians. And then some places are really specific that says God the Father resurrected Jesus. And then there's other places that said the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, resurrected Jesus. Which makes sense because... God the Father, the Holy Spirit, they're both God, really the same, just different persons. 
But when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, Jesus resurrected Lazarus, right? Lazarus didn't resurrect himself. I want to go to, actually, this is just kind of pop up here. I want to go to John. John chapter 2. In verse 19, this is after Jesus had made the, the whip out of the, the, the cords and drove the, the money uh, launders, money launders, money changers out of the temple, right? And then he makes these statements. Jesus answered and said to them, after they asked for a sign, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, he's in the temple, so was he talking about the building, or was he talk, what was he talking about? And so the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Okay, so maybe he's talking about the building. Verse 21 says, but he was speaking of the temple, his body. No question of what he was talking about. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word at which Jesus said. So, Going back to verse 19, remember, God rose Jesus from the dead. God the Father rose Jesus from the dead. God the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise myself from the dead. No denying Jesus is God. And the fact that he will resurrect himself from the dead is a pretty amazing thing. He's the one that we can put our trust in. He can raise himself from the dead. We've seen him raise other people. He raised himself from the dead. Who can do that? Who can do that? God is the correct answer. Jesus Christ is the one that raised himself from the dead. The one that raised himself from the dead showed himself to 500 people, the apostles, and those people went on to believe so strongly because they were in his presence that history shows they took it to their grave. Tortured, murdered. This is something that we can look at and say, now, why would these people do this? And you know why? Because it's true. It is absolutely true. You do not have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian. It is not something that, that the poor little us, if he was not resurrected from the grave, and we'll see this later on, how pitiable are we? But thank God he was. And it's proven. It's absolutely proven. So with all that, where are we in our faith? Do you have a faith? And if you do, amen, hallelujah, is it something that sustains you every day to where you just have a drive to go do the things of God? And we all have these days and these days, I get that. But are you in the faith? Is it, have you had an encounter with the living God that changed you? Not something that made you feel good one day and you checked the box, said a prayer. I mean, I said a prayer and... The Holy Spirit came in and changed me. Are you changed? Is there evidence of your salvation? Is it something that you love to talk about? Is it a, a, you've been changed into something that has joy even when your stomach hurts? Are you changed into something that has joy even when you're not happy? That's the question. That's what we got to search ourselves. Are we in the faith? Because the gospel like Paul says, it's something that we stand in. We stand in it. And it's, a, it's not like it's an important aspect of my life. It's my life. Now, how can you go to heaven without Jesus? Well, you can't because Jesus is life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through him. So I'll invite you today. I'll pray, and I'll invite you today. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today's the day. Come talk to me, Pastor Clinch, right there. There are deacons. There are men in this church. If you're a lady, you want to talk to someone. There's people around here that are saved that want you to be saved. And I, can, I, can, I know for sure because I experienced it that there was a time when I came forward and professed my faith, and there was a little bit of apprehension there. What are people going to think? Well, I'll give you two things. First off, we're going to think that's awesome, and we're going to put our thumbs up and hug you and think this is great. And the second thing is, who cares what people think, right? Who cares? It's people. There's God. God's calling you. God of heaven is calling you. Fear him. Don't fear me. I can't take away your birthday. God wants all of us to be saved. He wills that we're all saved. So today's the day. And if you are saved and you need to pray about something, once again, the altar is here to pray. You can pray where you are. But let me just open this up in a word of prayer. Uh, and I, I just I don't know how to say this other than just to say this. God loves you. Jesus is God. Jesus died a substitutionary death for all of our sins because none of us are worthy. He rose again on the third day. He rose himself from the grave on the third day. And he's ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father. And, very cool piece, he is coming back. And he's going to gather his people together. And we're gonna, it's going to be a party like you've never seen. I am looking forward to it. But I'll tell you something. I wasn't just saved for that. I'm alive today. I can walk day to day in the grace of God. And that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful life. It's a hard life when you're not a Christian. It's a hard life when you are. But at least we've got the God of the universe that's got our back while we're doing it. So if you need to talk, come on up front. Let me uh, say a word of prayer, and we'll just open it up for whatever prayers that you have. Love you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much that you are not only a God who is willing to save us, the fact that we are who we are and the fact that you are willing to save us is an amazing, amazing thing. And Father, on top of being willing, you are able. Lord, you resurrected yourself from the dead. How much more could you resurrect us? Lord, we put our hope in you and it's not a, a gee whiz, hope so hope, it's a no so hope based on your truth. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you for all you do. Lord, we thank you for your salvation, that free gift. And Lord, we just ask that you would change our hearts and change our minds to become more like you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.